0: Hey folks, we are uh, back and uh, hopefully about to start a pretty good streak of podcasting. Um, This week, we've got Spencer Sheffield on the phone. He obviously just won the Tackle Warehouse title up at the St. Lawrence, did phenomenally well it's kind of he's been hanging around winning a lot lately especially smallmouth tournaments and he got it done in style uh up at the St. Lawrence this time so we go deep on that we go deep on you know some stuff that'll probably help people catch fish um and you know really just kind of have a a broad conversation about the St. Lawrence and then other aspects of Sheffield's, you know, life and victory, how to be a pro angler, all kinds of stuff. Um, he's a good talker. He's always got interesting things to say, and you know, we hit a lot of the uh, hit a lot of the high points. I'd also say I know he's been on a lot of other podcasts lately. I've listened to a few. Pretty much every one of them has been pretty cool. Um, I've learned something different. I tried not to go over, you know, too much ground that I'd heard before. Uh, I I don't think you can go too wrong. Listen to a Spencer Sheffield podcast right about now. Um, I also didn't ask him, you know, for the usual sort of post game social media that kind of thing. But he's on Instagram. He's on TikTok as well. It's Spencer Sheffield fishing there. And uh, I guess that being the case, we'll go ahead and dive right into uh, Sheffield on his big win. Alrighty, righty, and we are joined now by Spencer Sheffield, uh, Tackle Warehouse title champion. Uh, got it done on the St. Lawrence River. Um, it's been a long time coming, man. Congratulations.
1: Thank you. Yeah, I, I was, uh, gosh, man, super pumped to get that win. You know, I like I told you a bunch of times, like, I'm not, I wasn't greedy. I wasn't expecting my first win to be a championship. I was just ready to get that first tour win under my belt. And uh, to get my first tour win under my belt and to be a championship, like, man, it just made it that much sweeter for me. I I have no complaints here at all.
0: Yeah, you definitely, uh, I mean, you've fished a lot of almost perfect tournaments over the last couple of years and come really close. And, you know, we've talked about it where different format changes over the years probably would have resulted in you getting a win or vice versa, uh, sort of the way it's turned out. But this one, you know, you caught a big bag on the final day, which was what you needed to do. wasn't the biggest bag of the tournament or anything, but the main deal was that final day. There were not ideal conditions, and you got it done. Yeah,
1: I, I knew that, like, 22-plus was going to have a shot. Um, you know, when I got – I got to 18 that morning really quick, um, but I had no big ones. They were all just like three and a half to three and three quarters. So it was one of them deals. Like yeah, I got 18 pounds in 25, 30 minutes. But basically, I still have zero because none of them. It wasn't like I got to 18 pounds and had a a five and a four and a half with three, you know, two and a quarters or whatever. It was. Like none of them were really weight fish. Uh, they were just all solid ones, but. Uh, It was one of them things like, okay, got 18 pounds, but we've got to catch five big ones, you know. I mean, none of these are are acceptable. And so I remember sitting out there thinking it was like 930. I I ended up catching like a a 427, I think is what she weighed, uh, at probably about 945. But I remember thinking, gosh, man, like, I know there's big ones in this area, you know, on these spots out here. Uh, I, I've got to get to that twenty-two, but you know, when you're up around the smallmouth fisheries, like especially on St. Lawrence River, even I mean, there is a, a chance to catch a seven. There is a you know pretty good chance to catch a six pounder, but I hadn't seen any of that size, so it was kind of one of them deals where. In order to get to 22, you were going to have to have five, four-and-a-half-plus pounders, you know. And uh, when I started off on a spot that morning where I'd caught a, a couple four-and-a-halves and jumped off a of six that last day I was out there on the water, uh, and I'd only caught 18 off of it, and none of them were that size, it kind of went to going through my head, okay, did I just so happen to catch the best ones that were here in this area? and, uh, and on this spot particularly. So it wasn't till probably about 11 o'clock before I got my first good spot. And it was a five pounder, five and a quarter. And that's when I got to that 20, 21, uh, range right there. And, and that felt good. And then I ended up catching another four and a half. And then I moved on up and right there in the last hour. So I caught another five and another four and a quarter. And, uh, then I seen my scale said 22.53, and I was like, dude, we've got a legit shot now. I mean, with the conditions the way they are, cloudy, rainy, been some strong winds today at times, like, we've got a shot, legit shot. I-, I felt it. I knew that that 22 was the magic number. It ended up 22 was the exact number that I had to have. But um, once I got to 22.5, I really felt pretty solid about it but you know i mean it was the nine guys left out there that were the best of the week and i knew they were going to catch them and they all did but um you know those kind of conditions 22 even on a place like that 22 is is pretty solid if you don't have sunshine
0: yeah and you had 22 12 dakota had 22 even uh and it the weights were not on that championship day they were not out of the world like the knockout round because the knockout round You know, you were probably at Niagara Falls or whatever, but, like, it was incredible for that one. Um, You know, Kurt Mitchell had 24, and then 13th place was 20 pounds. Like, that Mm -hmm. day was maybe, like, the best day to be fishing the river, you know, that they've had all year, just about. (laughs) Yeah, what's funny is 13th place was 20 pounds, and there was only 18 guys
1: fished that day. Yeah, <laughs> like that—that's what's incredible. Uh, yeah, I mean, I remember that day. I wasn't there, but I—I I, I know that it, I'm sure the conditions were the same. Yeah, I was. I was five hours south, but I got back later that afternoon, and and uh, Matt and Kurt had both. I was staying with them, and they had both told me that. Yeah, man, it was perfect out there. Day, no wind. And I remember being at Niagara Falls thinking, golly, they're probably going to smash them today. Because, I mean, it was bluebird skies and and not a breath of wind. And, boy, did they. You know, that's just classic smallmouth conditions, which is so strange because up there the water is so clear on most of them bodies of water, Champlain, uh, Ontario, St. Lawrence River. You would think bluebird skies, no wind, it would be really tough but it's like those smallmouths just thrive in those conditions and 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 eat so well and the only thing i can figure with it is they just really get out and start hunting they're constantly looking for something to eat when it's sunny and calm like it so i guess because maybe it's so windy up there most of the time that it's the opposite effect for them like here in arkansas it's calm a lot so when we get a windy day you can really wreck them and when it's really really still it's tougher well i think up there maybe because it's really windy all the time they they're used to that more so when it gets calm it's like it's something different so they really eat i I don't know what the deal is with that but it is crazy how good it is on those kind of conditions up there up north
0: yeah and it's it's weird because like I wouldn't say that they can necessarily see stuff better, right? Because smallmouth, they they're always moving, they're always hunting. They'll go a long way to a bait. But you'll see times where it's like kind of snotty and nasty out. And you'll watch a fish swim over to your bait from 20 feet away and then not eat it. Mm-hmm. And when it's sunny, that fish, that same fish might swim 20 feet and then eat it. You know, like it's, mm-hmm. I'm not 100% a believer. Like I've seen a lot of really good days of fishing on Champlain with bad weather. But it does seem like, man, the Saint Lawrence, the Great Lakes, like those fish there, like definitely seem to fire in sunny and slick conditions. And I don't, I don't fully understand it either. Yeah,
1: yeah, I did when we were on Champlain for the tour event, and I spent like the next fifteen days up there fishing. I had some really awesome days up there on when thunderstorms would roll in or the wind would really pick up uh seemed like it was better on cloudy kind of windier days but you're right it really is mainly an exception to the great lakes uh region like those those type of fisheries st clair it's it's like that uh just excellent on sunny slick days uh ontario st lawrence sturgeon bay i mean i've spent like 40 days up there the last two summers and you get a day where it's slick and no wind and or slick and sunny <laughs> i mean i don't know if i think you make more casts where you catch a smallmouth than casts you don't it's just it's crazy how that is to to those bodies of water that's you know you would consider great lake body of waters
0: yeah how let's dive in a little bit to how you caught your fish this week because i mean i've well last week now because i've watched you catch like seven million smallmouth um on a drop shot with live scope <laughs> over the last couple years and like that was Pretty much just the game plan, right? Like, what were what were you doing? Did you have any unique tweaks for the week? Well,
1: when I went to St. Lawrence last year, I uh, I tried to catch them out deep live scoping, and I did catch a few. But the main deal was was the current was so strong that I just I, I wasn't I wasn't seeing smallmouth like I, I thought I would or thought I should. Uh, I was seeing so many drunk. that was the thing, just tons and tons of drunk. and uh, it was frustrating, so I went shallow with a black hair jig, and went to just really just wrecking them up shallow, and so that's why I ended up doing an internment last year, caught tw- nearly 20 pounds the first day, and then the second day, I run back down there, and it's cloudy and rainy, and just got in a bad rotation, lost a couple of really big ones, and uh, couldn't re- recoup from it. I mean, only having three and a half, four hours to fish. And uh, ended up only wanting two for eight pounds. So, this year, going back, I was like, okay, we're here a month later. I know there's going to be a lot more out deep now. Because there was quite a few still shallow last year when we went there for the tour. Man. I think we went middle or into the There were some on beds. Yeah. So... I had the 32 transducer last year, the the, the 32 uh, Garmin transducer. So I knew this year with the 34 plus, I didn't get it until right after Pickwick. So Guntersville was the first place I got to go with the new 34 transducer. And I learned real quick that I could see fish a lot tighter to the bottom. Well, on St. Lawrence with all that current, it seems like the smallmouth stay a lot tighter to the bottom. So... I knew going there this year and then after Champlain and all of that that happened up there leading up to this and how much clearer the tran- the 34 transducer is, how much better I could see the fish down on bottom. Uh, you could see them bet- in the cracks and crevices of the rocks and just, and all of that. Um, I was really looking forward to getting back to, to the St. Lawrence this year. So when I got up there, I started searching for something special with scope. Now, yes, I came across an area that just happened to really have them. And, and it, after, you know, finding that area, looking back at it, it all makes perfect sense why it was so good. But I did try to concentrate on areas where maybe the current wasn't as stout. So those fish could get up off the bottom just a little bit and I'd be able to see them better. Well, it turns out, it didn't matter, really I mean you could see them anyways even out on the really in out on the main body of the of the river uh you could still see them fish down on bottom pretty well with that thirty four transducer it just the bottom separation it, it or I guess what it is is the degree uh i think it's they say that that the old one was like twelve or thirteen inches was the bottom separation on the transducer and this new one is six or eight so Wow. you can see something a lot tighter at the bottom than you could before almost almost half the distance is is how you can see it. it it just shows it that much better um anyways i noticed right off the bat this year when i got there i could see them a lot better down there on bottom but i felt i got over there in that area on the canadian side because that was off limits to us last year and it was a lot flatter over there so i noticed or I didn't really, it's not that I noticed it was going into that. When I got over there in that area, I was like, okay, since I, so much of this over here is so much flatter, anything that's a little
0: different, any
1: irregularities over here, that's where you're going to find them because everything's pretty much kind of the same. I mean, on the American side, you got a lot of drops, lots of shoals, lots of rock, and there's still a lot of rock over there on the Canadian side, but it's a lot flatter. And, um, mm-hmm. uh, I found those couple of chutes, those that, that one area had that chute, uh, where the big boats could go through like a little channel and just down current from that, you had these little high spots everywhere and everywhere in that area, there was nothing but like sand and just clay, I guess you would, you would call it. But those little high spots which probably weren't any bigger than most people's bedroom. Uh, had three or four pretty bigger rock on them and and like chunk rock and man they were loaded with smallmouth i mean there Mm -hmm. was every one of them places had four to ten smallmouth on them and uh, so it had them in a tight little area so it was easy to get a bait in front of them and since they were all so tight ganged up on those little spots it seemed like they were more competitive as well they didn't have them spread out they were all stuck to those boulders that were on them little high spots and you know talking about these high spots they weren't but like a three or four four foot rise uh if if that much some of them were only probably a two foot rise you know it was like a straight 35 foot out there and then these high spots would come up to like 27 28 at the most and the most of them would only come up to about 30 32 and that's just where those smallmouth were caught them all on a drop shot uh and an ed rig mostly on a drop shot and um, on those high spots i did catch several on an ed rig because it was mainly rock but on up in that chute, just up current from these little high spots i had a couple little shelves down the outside edge of this deep weed line that i had to use a drop shot because there was this little spongy grass down on the bottom about four to six inches tall and that Ned Rig would actually kind of go down into that grass. you can watch the smallmouth go down to the Ned Rig, but then you'd see the Ned Rig kind of go down in that grass. And I noticed at Champlain, and I noticed when I fished Lake George uh, a bunch during the break-in between the two tournaments that once that they would, you know, really go to that Ned Rig, but when they'd get down to that grass, that spongy grass, I think it kind of – Went down in it, and then smallmouth wouldn't pick it up out of that grass. They they wanted something above the grass. But if it was a hard, clean bottom, Nedrig was the deal. But that area right there on St. Lawrence, there where I was catching them in the title event, had that spongy grass, uh, and so I, I opted to throw a drop shot, and I ended up just staying with it most of the tournament because they, they were biting it good on them high spots as well. So, yeah, it was kind of a neat little deal. Um, and, and it's, it's kind of crazy how, to explain all of it because there were so many little key things I picked up on over the course of my, my tournament that really dialed me into being able to win that event.
0: Um, when you were like just sort of pre-gaming it, did you yeah. always know that you were going to go down to Clayton and that, that ballpark? Or did you try to spend time in the rest of the river closer to takeoff, um, to like have more fishing time. What was what was that decision like for you? Well, I actually going into that event, it was one of them deals where
1: I I love fishing for smallmouth. I mean, that's that's my my deal. That's my most favorite thing to do. And so I was kind of I'm not going to say bummed, but I was kind of bummed that the championship was on the Saint March River when I seen that this year. But I'm like that place just eat my lunch up there this year and and uh, I know that there's a lot of guys that spend a lot of time up there on the St. Lawrence and really know it well and uh, so I, and I don't, last year was the only time I'd ever seen it and I ended up losing one of my days of practice last year so I've only got three days of experience on it ever and, and two of them days were only you know put together only eight hours so I'm like dude I know nothing about the place I just know that you gotta go close to Ontario to win. And I thought, you know, gas being as expensive as it is now this year compared to what it was last year. I think last year on the water I paid like three ninety for it a gallon. And this year I knew it was gonna be over six bucks. I was like, you know what? No entropy, guaranteed ten grand, whether I catch a bass or not. I'm probably just gonna stay up there in Messina, not burn much gas you know, uh, Mitch and me had talking, he's like, oh, you can got 15, 18 pounds of largemouth right there around Messina the and not without even hardly trying. And I'm like, well, that, that won't even probably really get you a paddle in the back, but at least we can still catch some fish and maybe look up and figure something out special there around Messina. The but I'll save a lot of money. I won't be spending $300 a day to run down there to Clayton and back, which is dumb to even think that, you know, you're going for the championship. This is the tournament, you need to be trying to win if any of them. And internally, I just can't lay up like that. I, I just, I've never been able to, and I can't. So, but I was. That was my game plan, kind of going into it. I was thinking, I'm just going to stay there close. I don't want to run all the way down there to Clayton. It's an hour and a half, hour and forty five minutes. Uh, beat up my equipment and only have four hours to fish. There's so much that can go wrong making that run. But I knew that's where you had to go to win. So I said, heck with it. By the time Champlain was over. Fished the Toyota Series there at Champlain. Come, you know, finished third there. Uh, Momentum was kind of rolling. I'm like, ah, oh, we're going for it. I'm not going to stay up around the sand. I'm not even going to waste a second up there. So, first morning practice, I put in at Clayton. Right off the bat, went to catching them out there on drop shot, seeing them on live scope, really good. Uh, it was fun. Had a good day. Probably had that 23 to 24 pound mark uh, somewhere in there. So I felt like I kind of figured out something pretty good down there. So the second day, I headed up to Ogdensburg. I was going to fish up there uh, and practice and thought, I'll find something that's within an hour of takeoff uh, in case, you know, I got time coming back. I can stop on a couple spots or who knows, it might even be better in that section of the river. I've never made a cast in that section of the river. I have no idea anything about it. Well, I drive about 20 miles down to Ogdenburg, and I just got that gut feeling you, you you you're laying up if you go up this direction. You've got to go back down to Clayton. I just had that feeling. You know, I spent the first day down there. This is a championship. Why why not go back down there and spend another day? So I literally turned back around, drove 20 miles back south, back to Clayton got in the water at like 7.45, 8 o'clock, because I'd done wasted an hour in driving, and uh, put in, and that second day is when I found that area I ended up winning it out of. Uh, and I'm just so thankful for that, you know, that That's I had turn around going back. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and I look back at it, I'm like, dude, I almost just said the heck with the whole tournament and just saved my money and just stay there around Messina and fish for, you know, a few small mouths and some large mouth or whatever. I don't know why I was even thinking that, to be honest with you, but it was a good learning experience for me because now it's you know, I would have never really done that, but it was something that I was tossing around in my brain. And uh, the fact that I ended up not doing that, didn't lay up, ended up going for it like I always do, it just proves don't ever lay up for it, always go for it, always go for it. And, and I laid up at Champlain, and that's what cost me making the top ten there the very first day. And that was, that was the thing that made me think. And I thought that my, my whole career, it seems like laying up, is what's kept me from making more top tens, more wins. I've just so many times, I've caught the weight pretty quick. I get comfortable with it. I'm like, all right, let's leave my area. Let's just go fishing the rest of the day, try to find something new. And I never cull anymore or something like that. And it ends up costing me winning a tournament coming the end of the event because I lose by a pound and a half or something. And I'm like, gosh, you know, I'm not going to stay in that area and caught another three or four pounder and called out a two and I would end up winning this thing at Champlain. I go in my area the first day, catch eighteen two, leave out of there in like 30 minutes that morning and never cull the rest of the day and go back in there days two and three and went through multiple 19 pound bags every day, just throwing back three and a half, three and three quarters left and right. And I never had a clue. There was that many small in there. And I missed making the top 10 by one ounce. And I'm like, gosh, it's so dumb. And so that's what I was thinking on that drive to the St. Lawrence going up there day before practice. Like, dude, quit, don't lay up. Don't, don't lay up in any way. You've got to go for it. So that's, that's why I did, and then, then it popped back in my head again when I was going down there to Ogdensburg the second day of practice, and uh, that's why I turned around and went back to Clayton, and so for me, it was a learning deal like, don't ever lay up again. Don't even attempt to lay up, so uh, I, I will never lay up again.
0: <laughs> okay. Uh, does that mean you're always just going to like drive 100% straight to the juice every time? or because I feel no, like a lot of times no. you, you kind of like talk your way around like I got this to hit I got that to hit like it seems like you come out of practice like extremely well prepared
1: yeah I do now now as far as my game plan during during the tournament I am I'm usually running stuff in an area that I know is got on but stuff that I haven't fished yet so in practice, when I get in an area that I know has got fish and I dial in what they're holding on, the types of cover or the types of spot they're holding on, it's immediately when I dial that in, I look at all the other stuff in that area that's like it, and I make sure I don't fish it in practice because I don't want to potentially catch a four- or five-pounder in practice that I could have caught in the tournament. So if I roll up in an area, just say smallmouth fishing in a bay, and I, find, I, I realize, hey, hey, Every individual boulder's got a four-pounder on it. Then I'm going to go around that area, find all the other boulders I can, but I'm never going to make a cast on them. And so come tournament time, I usually, whatever spots I fish, say say I find a couple rock piles in practice that's really got them. Uh, I'm going to mark all the other rock piles I can in that area, and come tournament time, I'm going to fish all the rock piles I hadn't fished in practice. So I've got those two rock piles that I know has really really got them uh, that I found in practice I'm going to save them for when I absolutely need to have them because I already know they're there so I feel like if you can continue to practice in the tournament you're catching fish that you haven't caught yet and those fish count you're not throwing back four pounders or five pounders in practice that aren't counting Uh, you know they might count mentally but they're not actually counting for the tournament so it's kind of one of them deals i guess it's kind of it doesn't make sense to maybe some people but to me that's what makes me more confident that if i can continue to practice and i may go to a totally different area that i know has got the same type of stuff that i've had a bite or two in kind of doing the same thing fairly quickly i may go to that area in the tournament and if i feel like there's good quality tournament fish in that area too and fish it and save the area i found in practice for the final day or the next to final day uh But it it can burn you, I mean, too, because you might roll up the first day of the tournament in a new area that's got the right ingredients and not really go to catch them. And then you go to run to your area that's really got them, and there's people in there already fishing them. But I've ran into that only once or twice ever before, you know. I mean, if I find a spot in practice that I feel like is very obvious, that somebody else is going to find it too, and I get a decently early boat number, then I'm going to go to that spot first, obviously, because I'm not, I, I would rather me catch them and burn them than somebody else. Uh, but most, more times than not, we, we go to pretty big bodies of waters. We all spread out pretty good. And most of the time, if I find an area that I feel like pretty good or I get on something pretty small that I feel like you really have to pay attention to detail to, to figure that out, I'll save those places for when I feel like I've got to have them because the longer you can save them, the better off you are, you know, in my opinion.
0: Is that sort of going to a number one kind of spot? Is that maybe not mostly a Tennessee river thing, but do you feel like that turns into your strategy there more often than other places?
1: what on the Tennessee river kind of doing yeah, that
0: like for for Gunnersville this year maybe or, or just any other sort of ledge fishing tournament is that the one where you kind of want to win the boat race most or do you feel yeah, like Tennessee on those river places is. <laughs>
1: yeah the Tennessee river is one of them places where you better better go to one of your best spots right off the bat now this year the spot I caught the 25 pounds off of the Gunnersville, I did not start there uh I was like boat 135, so I knew if somebody else was going to start there, they were going to beat me there anyways, uh, more than likely. And plus, the spot was kind of a hidden-type place. It wasn't the ledge didn't make a point or nothing. It was just down a plain straight ledge, and there was nothing different down through. There was no nook, nothing that kind of cut in or nothing that cut out. And there was a lot of white bass there. And I learned that, or I found out in practice, when I marked all these fish, I knew it was a bunch of bass there because I could see them. They were bigger. You could just tell. But the white bass were were scattered down through there just like the largemouth would. So I turned around and went to fishing for them. And, like, the first five or six fish I caught were all big white bass. And then I caught, like, a five-pound largemouth and then an eight-pound largemouth. And I, and there was, like, 60 fall them to the boat. And then they all come up schooling. All these giants just come up blowing up everywhere. And I'm like, oh, my gosh, man. And I realized how these fish were set up. Well, I watched two or three guys while I was idling around, idle down this ledge, mark these fish, turn around and fish, and they'd catch like three white bass in a row, and they'd pull a troll motor up and they'd go back to island. So I knew right off the bat that most of these guys thought they just rode it off all oh, they're all white bass. And uh, so I didn't feel like anybody would really start there. So I, I opted to start on another ledge. And I fished it probably for about 45 minutes or so caught a couple three pounders. And I'm like, uh, let's roll over to that good ledge. Cause I could see nobody had started on it, rolled over and I had 25 pounds and six casts off of it. So <laughs> it was one of them deals. Like, you know, that was a good move, but I really, it, it, it didn't really matter. I could have started there. I just, uh, I would call him, I guess there, if I started there or, or didn't start there, it just so happened nobody else did, and I had that spot all to myself. Uh, come to find out, Jacob Wall was fishing it too, but I don't guess he. I don't think he really knew how good it, that spot was either uh, until later on that week. But um, yeah, it was that was a special place. But usually on Tennessee River, I'm going to go to my best ledge first because more than likely as good as our electronics are nowadays, and as good as guys are at using them pretty much every school fish out there is going to get found so if you find a school that you you can you feel like you got a lot of big ones in it you better start there right off the bat
0: i like it i like it um back on the smallmouth you have a really dialed in system i feel like you know from hook to rod to line like you're really good with a spinning rod and it seems like you don't lose fish it seems like You make a lot of the right presentations. What's your, you know, what's your drop shot setup? How do you vary it? Because I don't want to sit, I don't think like you necessarily need super specialized tackle for a drop shot, but I feel like you have it really dialed in for you anyhow.
1: Well, I know a lot of these guys have gone to the, like the rebar hook or, the uh, the one I like to use when I do use that presentation is the Gamakatsu G Finesse. It's the one that's got, it's the Kai Finesse drop shot hoop or whatever. That deal where you just thread your, your flatworm or minnow or whatever you're using for them. You just thread it up on the hook and the hook's just sticking out the back wide open. Mm-hmm. That is a deadly, a deadly uh, system set up to catch them. I mean... And you don't ever lose one, it seems like. But what I noticed with that is I noticed that this year on Champlain is where I really noticed it. Uh, when I went up there and pre-fished right after the Toyota Series on Potomac, I noticed that, and, and I used it at Sturgeon Bay all year last year as well, and kind of kind of noticed it there. But for one, it really hooks them deep. And they're always bleeding when you catch them because they're hooked deep. And I just don't like that. Uh, And But the main reason for it is, in my opinion, why I've gotten away from that, is it just kills the action of the bait. Like, you have to shake it so much harder to get bait movement, and there's no waving action to it. It's like the bait, the whole bait moves instead of moving like it's a jointed bait. There's no waviness to it when you're shaking it. And I've watched it. I've done it up in like a foot, two foot of water to see what it looks like. And I've just seen when I'm shaking it, my bait's not really doing anything when when that hook is ran all the way through half the body. Uh, So I went back to the nose hook. I use a number two Gamakatsu drop shot split shot hook. Uh, That's just the one I like. I've used the Aaron Martins one, and it's great. But for some reason, I tend to lose a lot more fish with that hook. I don't know why. The bend's a little wider on it, I feel like, and maybe the shank of the hook's just a tad bit longer.
0: Uh, It's got a different
1: coating. Yeah, it may do it, and it's got that different coating on it. But I've just lost a lot of fish on that hook, and so I like the just the original Gamagatsu drop shot split shot. And I always use either a number one, number two, or like a number six, I believe it is, And, and I use a four a lot as well, but. Usually the number two is the one I'm using. And, man, you don't have to jerk with that hook. You literally just reel until that line gets tight and then just kind of pull. And it what it does is it'll just pull it right to the to the edge, inside edge of their lips. And when they go to open that mouth, I guess, to let it come out, it just sticks them right in behind that, that lip bone. Perfect. Every time... And there's no way they can get any leverage to come off. Um, I love that little hook. It's just such an excellent hook. Um, and I always use 6-8-pound Yozuri T7 fluorocarbon with uh, Yozuri Super Braid and 15-pound high-vis yellow and 3-8 uh, to a half-ounce uh, arc tungsten teardrop drop shot weight. Um, you know, I, I use that Phoenix rod, the 7-4 medium and uh it's just a good setup i mean it's it just works for me uh really well and and uh, i just feel like all of that together is pretty much a a excellent excellent setup for them big smallmouth up there there's just not much they can do to get around get get away from it if you if you just kind of let them wear themselves out you know i don't get no hurry trying to get them in or anything like that i let them do their jumping and digging and all that i mean that's part of the fun (laughs) anyways for me oh yeah And, uh, eventually they're going to wear themselves out. They're going to roll up there. You can scoop them up with a net and they're going to be hooked right behind that lip bone,
0: that top, top lip bone almost every single time. So speaking of jumping, this is a distraction now, but I had, I lost one fish yesterday and I hooked it and I was reeling up on it and then it came off before it got to the surface and then it still yeah. jumped and it went like three feet in the air and like six feet to the side, just torpedoed straight out of the water, no hook or anything attached to it. And I, it was like a two and a half pounder. I had so much fun. <laughs> um, oh yeah. They're, small God, they're incredible fish. Yeah. That, that was a small mouth, obviously. Oh yeah. Yeah. That was not a large mouth. <laughs> yeah.
1: Um, yeah. They, they are, they're such a blast. What's, What's funny is them largemouth up there up north just don't really jump. It doesn't seem like when I was fishing up there uh, last month and catching a lot of largemouth and stuff out of Lake George or whatnot, they just fight so hard the largemouth do up there, but it's like they do not want to jump. And if they do, it's just kind of like a little waller. that's it. But them smallmouth, every time, straight to the surface. The big ones, anyway. seems like the three, three-and-a-half-pounders, they like to really dig and. uh Two and a half to two pounders, they like to jump. But them, them really big ones, uh, they're coming straight
0: to the surface
1: almost every single time. It's it's insane.
0: It really is. Yeah, they're they're a special fish. What a um, back on your rod choice, you're using the 7'4 medium. I think it's an extra fast, right? It is an extra fast. Do yep. You do you ever vary that depending on like either depth or how heavy your drop shot weight is? Or even, like, if you're down south, are you using a different rod? Or is that the one that's locked in? No, that's the one that's locked in. I, let's see, 2020,
1: I used the 7.2.
0: Last year, I got
1: I got a couple 7.4s. I just wanted to try them to see. And the action was no different than the 7.2. It was just the, that extra two inches. And I just feel like, being a taller guy, you know, I'm 6'3". And I just feel like that rod that extra two inches when they're down there deeper maybe makes a difference i don't know if it does i like it more for the for fighting the fish i just i like that little bit longer rod for fighting the fish um it just does the work i like that extra fast because you don't have to jerk on them any it's it goes to the backbone you know really quick that rod only about the the last 20 percent of it bends instead you know a lot of spinner rods it's like 40 percent of the rods bending uh, that is just like 20 to 25 percent all that's spending. so you don't have to pop them or anything you can just reel into them and pull and it's going to connect to them really quick uh with that extra fast tip but uh i definitely am always throwing a 7-4 with uh, my drop shot and i use a 7-2 for a ned rig but this year i've really spent a lot of time smallmouth fishing i, I did last year as well but this year i've spent a lot of time uh smallmouth fishing this summer and about to spend a lot more time smallmouth fishing here coming up can't wait to get back up there by the way uh, but i'm pretty sure next year i'll have all 74s I, I think i'm done with the 72 it's it's all a 74 rod from here on out if i'm using a spinning rod drop shot or ned rig i still will stick with the 72 though uh though when i'm skipping a wacky worm and stuff like that around boat docks or up around seawalls i'm going to stick to the 72 i like it the best for that
0: Interesting. That's uh, that's cool. I don't, I don't know if that's the opposite direction other guys are going, but like it makes sense. You know, it's and it's working obviously, so I I like it. Um, yeah. You've always loved smallmouth. Like I guess probably since the first one you got a chance to catch up north. How much over the years? Like how much time do you think you've spent up here chasing them? Because it feels like, you know, for an Arkansas guy, man. You always catch them in smallmouth tournaments.
1: Yeah, I mean, I've I've, I've done a lot of podcasts this week, and guys have asked me, "Where did you get your smallmouth experience?" I didn't. Uh, my first <laughs> real encounter, my first real true encounter. See, it goes all the way back to when my dad was fishing, fishing the bass side of things. Like, I always got to practice with him for the Bassmasters Classic every summer. He only missed it like two times out of the 18 or 19 year career he had with bass and so growing up in the summertime i always got to practice with my dad uh for the bass masters classic or any other term you had in the summer and it was never smallmouth fishing it was always down south somewhere you know louisiana delta or or wherever it may have been and uh, it was always largemouth fishing so i never really got to ever fish smallmouth turn. My dad, he wasn't a smallmouth fisherman. Uh, his smallmouth fishing was dragging a Carolina rig around with a six inch lizard or throwing a chartreuse bladed spinnerbait or a rattle trap. That's what he did. Uh, most of the time when he went to the smallmouth bodies of water, he went to find largemouth. That's that's what he, he did. He went to find largemouth. And uh, I can remember the first time I ever got an experience with smallmouth was on Lake St. Clair. My second year on tour as a co, no, it was my first year on tour as a co-owner, and he had told me all these stories about how awesome the smallmouth fishing was at St. Clair. All you had to do is burn a spinnerbait around the trap, and you catch a hundred a day, tons of three and four pounders. Well, we roll up there, and the first thing he does is run back in some backwater, throw a dang frog, catching two (laughs) to three pound largemouth. I'm like, what in the heck are we doing? Like. I looked so forward to coming up here and finally getting to catch smallmouth because the only experience I'd ever had with smallmouth was on the Catter River, which is like 20 minutes from my house. And we'd float it every other summer. We'd float it a day and we'd catch like a hundred smallmouth. But if you caught a two and a half to a three pounder, you'd caught a giant. Most of them were like 12 to 14 inches long. But I I, I was obsessed with them. I don't know what it was. I always caught a bunch, of them, a bunch of them out of my grandparents' creek that ran through their property. They had a bunch of smallmouth in it, but they were, you know, little. A, a pound and three quarter was a big one uh but i loved them i just thought they were the most beautiful thing ever and they fought so much harder than everything else you caught anyways finally that was back when we i think we got four days of practice finally this like is the last 2008
0: two days. on the detroit river
1: yeah or... 2008 okay yeah it was two, two, 2007 actually uh finally he had found enough largemouth stuff the last two days like oh, right well, let's go times about it and uh i was just like man i'm ready to catch some dang smallmouth we came up for you talking about all this smallmouth fishing all we've done is throwing a frog and flip a jig for largemouth and, yeah we were catching them but i catch largemouth all the time I'm, and and we would run across the lake every day two or three times to go back in another canal or something the water was so clear so blue and beautiful and i'm like oh my gosh i want to be out there why don't we got to come back in here where this water's nasty and there's grass floating everywhere and Anyway, so finally the last two days we go out there and we tie on a a five-eighths-ounce Yozuri trap, uh, black and chrome and blue and chrome, and I mean we wrecked them. Like, it seemed like every third cast we were catching a a three-and-a-half to a five-pound smallmouth. It was unbelievable. They had just got done spawning. Uh, You could see beds everywhere. It looked like tires everywhere up in like six to eight foot of water just dished out tires where they had been on beds and all these smallmouth were roaming around up there and they would wreck a rattle trap. Like you would bomb it out there as far as you could throw it and hit the water. And I mean, as soon as that trap was to vibrate and one would, would just stop it in its tracks, and a four pounder would jump 10 times where you turn the, the real handle twice. It was just the most insane thing I'd ever seen in my life. And from that point on, I was like, okay, I never want to catch a largemouth again. This is all I want to do. And so, I ended up drawing Tom Montserrat the very first day. He's throwing a swim jig, and I'm throwing a trap. And, I mean, I spanked him out of the back on a trap. And that was the first day. I I think I only weighed in like 18 or 19 pounds. But we weren't in like a great area, but we were in a, you know, I mean, it didn't matter. There were smallmouth everywhere. But we were on the American side instead of the Canadian side, too. But caught them really, really good still. Just not as many big ones. And, man, I'm just telling you, from then on, I couldn't, when I went pro my first year, we ended up going to two or three more smallmouth tournaments after that. We went to Champlain, like, the next year, and I finished third or fourth up there as a co angler fishing for all smallmouth. Uh, and it was just one of them deals where I was like, man, this is my jam. I absolutely love these fish. And so... My first year, I went pro. They had an open up there on St. Clair, and I couldn't wait to get up there. My dad tried to talk me out of it. He's like, yeah, I wouldn't go up there. You can get your teeth kicked in. Them guys really know how to catch smallmouth. You don't, you know, and all that. And I was like, yeah, well, I want to go catch smallmouth. I don't care if I if I do any good or not. I just want to go catch smallmouth. And I ended up going up there. Larry Nixon won that tournament, But I finished third or fourth, I believe, just drifting around, dragging a drop shot and a tube and throwing a big crankbait. And uh, – man, from that point on, knowing that I could compete out of the front of a boat catching smallmouth, I was like, yeah, okay. <laughs> <You> know. <laughs> and I don't know, man. It's just been my passion and desire ever since to catch smallmouth. I don't. It's not that I had any special experience with it. I never drew a guy that was like unbelievable smallmouth fisher fisherman or nothing. I never learned anything from anybody smallmouth fishing that really set me off to being able to catch them. It was just strictly a passion and desire that drove me to catch a smallmouth bass. And so when I go to a smallmouth bass fishery, it's like my intensity is at a different level. I mean, I'm always giving it 110% every second on the water, no matter where we are. But when I show up to a smallmouth body of water, it's like on steroids, because I know every single bite I'm going to get that next day is going to be a brown bass. And it just makes me like so much happier and so i mean that's just really where it is i mean that's just that's all there is to it Uh, and i've literally just dedicated my time to figuring them out learning to catch them better and better each and every year and just loving the time that i'm spending on the water getting to catch them i mean that's just all it is to it i mean really when you sum it all up it's, it's just the love to catch a brown bass for me
0: that's cool um this is a, maybe a, it's kind of a, I'm transitioning topics kind of harshly here, but you have like kind of started your career as a pro fisherman twice now because yep. you did it, you know, as a co-angler fishing alongside your dad, like moving your way up the ranks. And then you dropped off the tour and you fought yep. your way back. Um, did you, uh, like, I don't know exactly how old you are, but is this where you thought you you'd be at this point in life, you know, 10 or 15 years ago or, or has it worked out differently? You know what I mean? Like what's, what's it feel like right now?
1: Well, it's worked out differently. I mean, for sure. When I was a kid, I would have thought, you know, I didn't realize there was other kids fished a lot. Uh, I mean, I, I, I play – I spend a lot of time – okay, so growing up, my dad fishing bass, I mean, he was around – I was always around all them them great guys out there, the George Cochran, Kevin Bean damn I mean, dad talked to all them guys. I was seeing them all the time. It, they were just a, another fisherman to me growing up, okay? Uh, but I can remember going to tournaments, and some of these guys would have their kids there, and I'd hang out with them. I can remember spending a lot of time playing with Alton Jones Jr., and I can remember, he didn't go out and practice with his dad. You know, it would be, you know, I would I would spend time hanging out with him the day before practice started, and I'm going to getting ready to go out and practice with my dad the next day, and and he would stay back like he. I can remember, I can't remember where we were down somewhere in Alabama. And of course, man, I'm like nine or ten, I don't know then. He might have been six or seven, eight, I don't know. But I remember him trying to talk me out of going practice with my dad the next day. He's like, man, stay here. Look, we play all day and stuff. I, I, I can just remember that. And I was like, no, man, I'm going fishing. You know, so I, I guess in a sense, I felt like I was the only little kid that fished back in the day. And you grow up thinking like, man, I cannot wait till I can be old enough to fish professionally. So in my head back then, I guess I looked at my career maybe as being like having Almost the wind. Sure yeah like I looked at my career being probably like where Jacob Wheeler's is right now back then like I would have thought okay I will have done one three or four Bassmaster classics or FLW cups or or uh three or four angular years by now you know I would have that that's just what you're thinking as a kid because all you did is dream professional bass fishing uh so of course I've made up this ginormous thing in my head that I'm going to win every single tournament I fish, you know, I'm not going to be able to be stopped. Uh, so when I got to start doing it, you know, I did have a lot of success out there as a co-angler. And then when I even, even when I went pro, I mean, I should have won like the, the third one I fished on Table Rock. I mean, I only lost by seven ounces and lost the winning fish like 10 times, but you realize that that's just not really a reality. You're not going to win every tournament. It doesn't matter who you are. You, you're just not going to, uh, because everybody is is such a well-versed fisherman nowadays and just really good and there was a lot of other kids out there like me that was breathing and dreaming and sleeping professional bias fishing as well whether they grew up with a dad that did it professionally or not it was their dream too and and it's just as much they wanted it to become reality as i ever did so you know no my career note has not ever turned out the way i had planned on it but looking back over the last 14 or 15 years since i've graduated seeing where i'm at now considering circumstances some of the stuff i went through it's better than i could have thought it would have turned out had you told me when i was 20 years old that the things that i went through were going to happen and that i was going to be where i'm at now i would have told you you were lying probably i'd probably be working at a factory or a plant somewhere eight to five every day and just be miserable that I wasn't fishing professionally. So now to look back at it and see, I finally got my first win at 33 years old and it happened to be a championship. I feel like I'm way in a sense, way ahead of the curve, like from, you know, the cars that I've kind of been dealt, uh, I've made the most out of it, you know, and I've kept a positive attitude about it, especially coming back this second time. The first time I feel like I took the sport for granted. I felt like that's where I was supposed to be you know because I was born to do this I mean that was this was my life no matter what nobody could take it away from me but then I've realized that it doesn't matter how you grew up or or where you what you grew up in you still have to earn your right to be out here and it's still a chance just as much of a chance and a risk to take for me as it would be the next guy so now that I'm living it in reality man I just feel super blessed to To have won this last tournament and and things really looking positive in the future for me now
0: yeah did you uh did you go to college or did you graduate high school and sort of just jump right out there
1: no we started preparing for me to go uh to do this when i was in the when the when i was in the ninth grade uh i'd already made up my mind when i was like three years old this is what i was going to do and i guess i didn't know because i was just a kid but my dad, till you know, has told me many a time since he's like, I knew from the day I got you on the water that this was this was your destiny. So they never fought me on what I wanted to do professionally ever, uh, and that I wanted to fish. He knew that that's where I was supposed to be. Him, and my mom, both just knew, and uh, I knew. You know, that was my love and desire. So in the ninth grade, I started taking a bunch of extra high school uh, high school classes like. In ninth grade, I took some tenth grade classes in tenth grade, eleventh, eleventh senior. you know, I took extra classes. So when we went on Christmas break, my senior year, I was done. I had enough credits to go in and graduate, and I didn't have to come back uh, after Christmas break was over. Oh, I wow. went straight on to the first tournament, which was at Okeechobee. That was my very first Cogra event full time. I'd actually fished Lake Old Hickory the summer before. Uh, out of the back of the boat. But my first true tournament for a full season was Lake Okeechobee. And uh, so, yeah, we planned it where I was able to take a bunch of extra classes and get out early to start the following January.
0: Wow. That's that's really cool. How would you, I guess, you know, you've kind of, you started your career twice now. You have also had, like, a ton of success at the local level. I think you said that you've won, like, seven boats without live scope or something like that? Or am I cutting you off or am I shortchanging you on that one?
1: <laughs> no, I mean, it depends in that four year period I did, but I mean, if, if we went back over the last 15 years, I I mean, i won a lot of boats around here locally. i want won a lot with my brother, uh, and some other guys that I, that I fished team hermits with, but in that four year time period where our, between 2015 and 2020, uh, the first experience I got with LiveScope, then it was called Panoptics, Garmin Panoptics, yep. which was Stetson Blaylock. We spent spent a, you know quite a few days on the water in the wintertime during really the off season. He had it and I'm gonna say that was in two thousand seventeen and I mean the first time I seen that, that son of a gun on a screen and, and saw a fish and what could see your bait fifty foot in front of the boat, I was like, Okay, this is a complete game changer. I wanted one from right off the get go, but it, I knew, you know, he said it was like $1,200 or something like that. And I'm like, well, I'll never do it before that. And, uh, not for a long time anyway. So I just, you know, kept doing my fishing. Nobody else really had, it. I think three or four guys had it, but they were guys that had a lot of money. They weren't guys that like were really competitors. You know what I mean? They're just guys yeah, that fish yeah. tournaments, but they never really ever did any good anyways. And so it never got any notoriety around here locally. Um, uh, there was just like I said, just a few guys that had it, but they weren't having success using it. So I just kept on fishing like normal and, uh, won a lot of tournaments, uh, won any of the year and everything around here. And then in 2018, I uh, won the Mr. Bass of Arkansas championship on Lake Dardanelle, it was a three day event, won the championship there. And then I fished the entire next year, uh, locally and one angle of the year and everything. Uh, one the well, I got live scope with our Mr. Bass Arkansas championship was on Beaver Lake the next year in 2019. And I knew, you know, being a clear body of water, having a lot of boulders, small and I spotted bass, uh, having the uh, those fish suspended. I knew that that live scope was going to be a player there. And I had a buddy that was pretty close to me that had just got it a few months before, and I was actually up in there am I going to buy scope, or am I going to spend $1,800 for the Toyota Series on Lake of the Ozarks that was coming up? And I decided to get LiveScope instead of spending the money to go fish the Toyota Series so I'd have it for the Mr. Bass Championship on Beaver Lake. So I got it the week before the Mr. Bass Championship on Beaver Lake, took it out for a solid week, used it on Lake Hamilton and Lake Ouachita and started to really dial it in. And that's when I went up there to Beaver Lake the final Mr. Bass tournament of the year, which was a championship, and won using Livescope exclusively and then the very following January is when I started back on the tour and ever since then I've just every time I go on the water, I mean it's more and more I've just learned about the livescope and just learned to fall in love with it even more and and so now, I mean, I exclusively try and figure out how to catch them using it because it's just such a deadly piece of equipment to have on your boat.
0: Yeah, no doubt. Um, I what? So I'm 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 beating around several questions here, and I want to come back to Livescope. What would you uh What would you suggest for someone who is like trying to be a pro angler? Because you've kind of, be, you've become a pro angler twice now. Like, if there's a kid who wants to be a pro that eats, sleep, and breathe it, how do you, what what's the best way to do it? Is it to go to college, fish in college fishing? Do you think it's to fish everything you can around the house and work your way up? Like, is it some alternate route? What's, in your mind, what, what do you think the way is right now?
1: Well, for me... It was fishing locally as much as I could to get back the second time. the second the story that it took for me to get back the second time was the most impor- is the most important time period time chart in my career. That four years, I started right out the gate. I just filed a bankruptcy, just went through a divorce, had no money at all, had no boat had no rods. I sold all of my fishing equipment, every single piece of it. I sold it to have just some money to be able to... Everything that I accumulated from the nine years prior, I had sold every bit of that uh, in order to have some money to try and pay some bills off, whatever it was, to kind of try and get back off the bottom a little bit because I hit complete rock bottom. So, I started fishing some team tournament with, with some guys that had a boat and then formed good relationships with them where they let me borrow their boats to fish BFLs, Mr. Basses, uh, whatever it was that was solo tournaments so I wouldn't have to split the money. Uh, when I did win one of them or do well, I wouldn't have to split the money. Uh, I, I, I did it that way. Uh, it, it wasn't easy. There was nothing easy about it Um, You know, of course, I still had some bad tournaments around here locally, but I really learned these lakes around here locally. I mean, I already knew them really well because I'd spent just thousands of days on these lakes around here. But I really learned them in that four-year period, learned everything about them, learned so much about fish in general in that four-year period. So I just strictly competed at a local level and got to the point where, like I said, I was winning Angler of the year in all the tournament trails. Uh, one, you know, a couple championships. Was winning a lot of tournaments, and I've always said that Arkansas and Texas, probably Alabama, too. But Arkansas and Texas has probably, as a whole, the stoutest fishermen there are. I mean, they just know how to catch them. Uh, just because we have such a variety of fisheries. I mean, you can go fish to Arkansas River, uh, like Millwood. Those are shallow. Dirty water lakes, lots of vegetation, lots of wood to flip. Then you got Washita, Greer's Ferry, Gray Hampton. They're deeper, clearer, more brush, offshore fishing. So you got to know how to do that. Uh, so I learned how to catch them in all types of places. And I just learned that really well because I, those were the places I was having to fish all the time. And uh, so once I learned that, you know, I had already competed and won several BFLs out of the front of the boat before that four years I had off, but I still had a lot of tournaments that I would not do good in, you know, kind of bomb and finish in the 20s or 30s or whatnot. So that four years, I I got it to where, I mean, I was literally making a top five nearly in every single tournament. That's when I discovered that I'd really learned myself, knew what I was going to be the best at, learned how to make the absolute most out of it, and that's why when I got back to the tour level after winning championships, winning boats, saving up the money to be able to pay me entry fees for the tour in 2020, I went out there with a lot of confidence in myself and in my fishing ability to be able to compete against the guys that were doing it for a living full time and had been out there doing it for a living full time for four or five, six years. You know, they had four or five, six more years ahead of me traveling all over the country doing it. I mean, my deal it's just, for any kid that's trying to get started i mean i'm not gonna tell anybody not to go to college but i never got to do high school fishing growing up they didn't have that when i was in high school and i didn't go to college and that didn't start until probably 2013 or 14 before they really started the college fishing well by at that point i was already 24 25 years old so i was you know not too old to go to college but probably too old to do college fishing i would assume uh <clears throat> So that might be a good route for somebody to go. But in my opinion, it would be start at the BFL Toyota Series level or start at the BFL level and fish all your local stuff. Stay there until you can compete against your, your hometown guys. And once you start beating them at a consistent, on a consistent basis, that's when you need to step to the Toyota Series and stay there until you get more financial stable and you can afford to fish multiple Toyota Series
0: uh,
1: events like... You know five six seven of them in a in in a year's time, get really competitive on that level and then once you get competitive at a Toyota series level, you're ready to go to the front out on the the main tour, whether it be b p t or or the Taco warehouse Pro circuit or whatever it is. that's when you'll be ready to go out there and you know that you can compete with the guys that are doing it full time
0: okay when you when it came to like sort of not relearning your local lakes but like learning how to win on your local lakes what what were some of the what were some of the things that you picked up on like that made you that were that let you take it to that next level
1: oh man kind of a kind of a uh, a hard one to answer because it, you have it, a lot of, kind of diversity of in there it's not
0: like you learned just one technique or something right
1: <laughs> yeah i mean i it was more of my on on the water decisions uh I can remember back when I was fishing professionally the first time, like if I pulled up to a spot and I didn't go to that I thought I was gonna really catch them on good and I didn't, then I would go to my secondary my next spot and if I didn't catch them there either, then I would start to spin out of that event and be like, Oh my gosh, I'm not gonna catch them down being a hundred and tenth place and I'm not even gonna be able to afford to go to the next tournament. That was a lot of pressure, a lot of stress. When I stayed here locally, it was one of them deals that, you know, you only got two or three hundred dollars invested. Yeah, my gas is the same expense, but most of the time I was getting to stay at my house because Washington's only 20 minutes from me, Lake Hamilton's five, degrees, 20. Uh, most of the tournaments were, were here pretty close, so I didn't have the expense as far as having to buy a hotel and stuff too. So I was able to just be more settled down on the water. Uh, I was able to, to to let things develop. That was the main deal, being able to watch it develop on the water as far as you get on a pattern during practice and then you roll up tournament days completely different conditions are different and that pattern is no longer working just alternating through other baits and other techniques and and other types of banks or or whatever it was that i was doing uh letting it develop and watching it develop in a day and go from in practice i was killing them throwing a dt6 out over grass to now i'm having to drag a football jig out here in 35 foot of water to catch on And doing that, doing something in the tournament that's complete opposite of what I thought I was going to do from what I've seen in practice and winning a tournament or finishing in the top five, that gave me the confidence that when I got back out on tour to don't just go off strictly what happened in practice. I mean, obviously, if you catch them doing something in practice and the conditions are the same in the tournament, it's one thing. But so many times you get on something in practice, and then tournament day rolls around, it's going to be completely different. So you have to just let it develop. I, I just feel like I've gotten really good at just letting the fish tell me what they want, what I need to be doing, and running with it, whether I saw that in practice or not. Uh, like Rayburn, for instance, this year, I ended up catching a lot of them on a drop shot and a jerk bait in the tournament. <clears throat> and one day in practice, I caught them good doing that, but the second day of practice, I couldn't hardly get any bites doing that. I ended up catching them on a wobblehead out like 35 foot of water, and that ended up being my best thing going. Well, come tournament time, I couldn't get on to bite the wobblehead out there at all, and so I started alternating through other things, and, and that's when I got back on the drop shot and the jerk bait, but it was on totally different type stuff than it was in, in practice. They were more out over brush and, and timber in practice. They were more kind of on banks that had some chunk rock or back in – pockets that had feeder creeks in it and things like that so just being able to see stuff develop on the water during a tournament and having confidence that if what you have found in practice wasn't working uh when it comes tournament day that you can just continue to just go back into practice mode and figure it out when you've only got five or six hours left and uh and being able to catch enough to salvage the day that was mainly what i learned around here locally and that's what gave me the confidence It's given me so much more confidence in my fishing ability is just being able to go out on a whim and, and start doing something completely different and, uh, watching it, watching it all come together on a tournament day. You know, I've got a lot of confidence in just scratching the plan and just trying to find a new plan on the water during the tournament.
0: That, make, that makes a lot of sense. And like, it makes sense that you could develop that better, you know, close to home than anywhere else, you know? Like there's yeah, and, with that and, little bit less pressure.
1: Yeah. And, and I, I felt like, you know, I learned how to fish for the winning fish more too. You know, before it was, it was a little different. I, I had two or three things I liked to do and that's what I did. Now it's, I, I found different ways to win uh, or I found different ways to win around here. I learned that the quality fish are usually always going to be doing this or that this time of year. And, and I learned places that were good this year, but like next year, they're not any good. Uh, and so you had to constantly figure out where the fish were moving, what they were doing. Uh, man, there was just so much to it. It's That's really a hard question to kind of answer because it's just kind of comes naturally when you, when it's all starts to happen, it's just, It's a natural thing that happens. I don't think a guy, I think looking back, he can, on a year, he's like, okay, this is where I went wrong. This is where I went right. Uh, But as it's actually happening, you don't actually realize it necessarily. Maybe at the end of the day you realize it, but it's just something that just naturally starts to flow and happen, you know. I mean, i mean it's like kind of like michael neal you know he got he every year progressively and progressively got better and better john cox was the same way and then them guys win and you see it start to happen more and more and more and i don't think they could necessarily tell you the exact point in time when that happened it just naturally started occurring they started making a lot better decisions on the water i mean a fish don't have a clue if it's my bait or if it's Kevin Van Dam throwing it out there to them. you know what I mean. They have no clues behind that
0: behind that rod and reel.
1: They might um, know if it's Jacob but,
0: Wheeler, though. They might see his and be yeah, like, "Oh, they, I got a bite." But
1: <laughs> yeah, they they might. But I'm telling you, those guys that are consistently at the top are the guys that are making the best decisions on the water. It's not because you know they they're the absolute best with live scope or any of that. You still have to make the right decisions on the water to catch them. I mean. If you're making the wrong decisions, it don't matter if you've seen them or not. If you're making the wrong decisions, you're just not going to catch what you've got to catch to be competitive.
0: Yeah, because I mean, on the live scope thing, like you could catch a hundred two pounders in a day on live scope if you wanted to, and you know that would be great and all. But if you're in the wrong part of the St. Lawrence, like that doesn't help you at all. <laughs> you know, it's exactly yeah, yeah. I, Knowing I hear when you. to
1: stay and when to go—that's a big thing.
0: I like it. Well. I guess on that note, we probably should wrap things up because your ears, you know, probably like about welded to your phone now or, or vice versa. And uh, we've really gone pretty long, which I appreciate. But um, I guess the last thing is, one, have you bought yourself anything cool now that you've got an extra 200 grand? Well, it's going to be less after taxes, but have you had, have you celebrated your win at all? No, I haven't. I mean, I I haven't,
1: I have not, I have not went out and and bought anything. I paid off a credit card with it, which felt good. Uh, uh, that's basically it. I, I mean, I've, I've been really fortunate over the last three years since I've got back, you know, having good sponsors and, and having good tournaments that I have kept myself completely out of debt over the last three years. Um, so no i haven't i'm kind of just banking it and leave it in there for a rainy day i did make a big tackle warehouse order and order about 300 more flatworms uh, that's probably the thing <laughs> the one thing i'm the most excited about is getting that tackle warehouse order with all these these flatworms because um, that's just ugh, i love catching smallmouth and i love flatworms but um So, yeah, I mean, really, that's that's the only thing I've I've really spent any money on at all is more smallmouth gear.
0: I like it. Well, uh, man, congratulations on the win. It was fantastic to see. And uh, thanks for coming on the show. I really appreciate
1: it.
0: Yeah, man. Thanks for having me on.